Hey everybody. Last time on Peter and the Starcatchers we read chapters 26 through 29. And we what we learned in those chapters, chapter 26 was called Into the Sea and Slank threw Peter into the sea, but he didn't actually go into the water. He flew and he flew back onto the Neverland. Blackstash had taken over the Neverland and had found the treasure or the trunk on uh, the Neverland ship and Peter comes back onto the ship after flying and him and Molly are able to get it over the edge and it floats as well it kind of flies and floats down and goes into the water and all this whole time the storm is going on the Neverland is breaking up the ship is breaking up Stash is very upset that he doesn't have the treasure. And Peter kind of stops being able to fly, so now he is in the water. And the last thing that happened was Molly jumped over the edge of the Neverland into the water. So that was the end of chapter 29. So chapter 30 is called A Helping Hand. The third, wave the third wave grabbed Peter high on his chest and yanked him down in its cold, relentless grip. As his head went under, he grabbed a breath of air, wondering if it was his last. But the churning of the water brought him up again for a moment, and he managed to get another. Then the massive weight of the wave drove him deep, tumbling him so he no longer knew which way the surface was. Seconds passed, then more seconds, and as his body continued to tumble, his chest began to burn to ache, and as the ache turned to agony, he knew that soon he would not be able to hold his breath any longer. That was when he felt a hand grab him by the hair. Molly. He felt himself being pulled up, up. But before he reached the surface, his desperate lungs gave out, and he felt seawater rushing into his mouth. And then for a while, he didn't know what was happening. And then he was gagging and coughing up seawater. And he was cold, but he was also breathing. Which meant he was a lot which meant he was still alive. Peter, are you all right? Molly was shouting into his ear. He wanted to tell her he was all right, but he couldn't talk because of all the water coming out of him. Peter shouted Molly, you must hold on to me. Do you understand? I can't keep us up, keep us up much longer. That was when Peter noticed he was flying again. Actually, Molly was flying and somehow holding Peter up having draped his right arm around her shoulder. They were perhaps 25 feet above the sea now, and Peter could see that, see that just ahead of him, the towering waves were crashing with an ungodly thunder onto what appeared to be jagged rocks. He could feel that Molly was struggling to hold him. Her voice was strained. Put your arms around my neck, she shouted. There's rocks here. There might be an island, but the star stuff is wearing off. Her locket, thought Peter. She used her locket. Still choking up seawater, he managed to drape his arms around her neck, locking his hands together as tightly as he could. He felt Molly lean forward and felt them glide downward a bit, then swoop up. The thundering of the waves on the rocks grew louder, deafening now. Peter, trying not to think about what lay below him, concentrated on holding on to Molly. But his arms were getting weary. His hands were beginning to slip apart. Molly felt it. Don't let go, she shouted. 
But Peter couldn't help it. He felt his grip weakening. Hang on, shouted Molly. Just a bit more. But Peter couldn't hang on. He felt his cold fingers separate, and suddenly he was falling again. He heard Molly shout his name. But before she got it all out, he was plunged into the cold sea again. He managed to struggle to the surface and get his head up for an instant, then felt himself hurled violently forward, tumbling like a leaf in a windstorm, over and over, and then he slammed into something, then again, then again, scraping against his face. Sand. He got his feet under him, only to be knocked down and rolled by another wave, then, then another, and another. On hands and knees now he crawled forward, until finally... Finally, he escaped the clutching waves. Still on hands and knees, he heaved up what seemed to be an impossible amount of seawater. When he could heave no more, he tried to stand, but found that he was too weak. He put his head down on the sand, and, as the surf thundered behind him and the wind howled above, Peter fell asleep. Chapter 31 The Lagoon not far from where Peter lay unconscious, a lagoon connected to the sea. It was, in good weather, a beautiful place, a near-perfect semicircle of flawless white sand, perhaps a mile across, bordered by a curtain of tall, graceful palms. In the center of the curved beach lay two dozen or so massive sea-smoothed boulders, some of them the size of a sailing ship, forming a hulking jumble of rock that stretched from the trees into the blue-green water. Behind the beach, the island rose steeply to a ridge several hundred feet high, jungle thick with vegetation, forming a curved green wall that cut the lagoon off from the rest of the island. The lagoon teemed with life, turtles, jellyfish, crabs, and vast schools of lavishly multi-hued fish. Normally, these creatures were sheltered from the surge of the sea by a coral reef. It ran across the mouth of the lagoon from one side to the other, with only a small break in the center, through which the tide flowed in and out. But the low reef was no match for the waves churned up by this storm. Every few seconds a towering wall of wind-driven water rose high over the reef and broke upon it with a thunderish, thun thunderous crash, sending a surge of churning, foaming water rushing high onto the beach, then back toward the sea, leaving the surf-scrubbed beach empty for a few seconds awaiting the next incoming surge. But one of the waves left something behind, the trunk. It happened to tumble ashore in the center of the beach, becoming wedged in the sand at the base of one of the massive round boulders. The waves had taken their toll on the old wooden box. There were several cracks now, one perhaps a quarter inch wide. As the waves washed over the trunk, water seeped into the cracks and then back out. The water seeping out was glowing, a soft, greenish-gold glow, the color of fireflies. The glowing water behaved oddly. It remained next to the trunk, swirling and spiraling around it, somehow unaffected by the push and pull of the raging wave water rushing past. In time, as the storm began to subside, a large, sleek fish with a silver body and a bright green tail glided near, and then into the glowing seawater. It stopped there, hovering. It did not leave. Soon it was joined by another, similar fish, and then another. They, too, remained in the glowing water, unable or unwilling to leave. They stayed there for hours, their fins barely moving, their gills working. 
At times the water changed colors that changed and shifted. Now one color, now another, now many colors, an underwater rainbow. And then the fish began to change. Chapter 32, The Wreck of the Neverland On the heaving deck of the Neverland, James, huddled with the other boys, watched in despair as the pirates leaped back onto their sleek black ship, taking a few prisoners, the lucky ones, thought James. Then the pirates cut themselves loose from the old tub. As the ship separated, the Neverland was seized by a huge wave and heaved violently skyward. James felt the deck tilt sharply. He then fell, hearing the screams of the other boys, Prentice, Thomas, and loudest of all, Tubby Ted, as they too lost their footing on the sloping, slippery deck. Grown men screamed as well as the ship reached the top of the mountain of water and began to slide down the other side, faster and faster, tilting now at an impossible angle. The Neverland broke apart, whole sections of the deck tearing loose, the masts splintering like twigs. A crewman was pitched, screaming into the sea. He was followed by another, and then another. James felt himself sliding with the other boys toward the ship's downside rail, toward the angry sea, all of them flailing desperately, trying to grab onto something. By the look of things, James knew that soon enough there would be no ship at all. "'Here, lad!' boomed a voice from behind him. "'Over here!' James turned his head and saw the big crewman, Peter's friend, Alf, holding out a massive hand. James grab, grabbed hold of it and felt himself hauled away from the rail. The big man managed to rescue the other boys as well, hauling them toward him, somehow keeping them all from sliding off the ship. "'Hold on to each other, lads!' he shouted. "'There's a dory this way!' He jerked his head toward the stern. "'Hurry!' Clinging to each other, Alf and the other boys half-crawled, half-stumbled to the stern where a battered dory tumbled back and forth on the deck, held tenuously onto the deck by a frayed line. "'Get in, lads!' shouted Alf, untying the line. "'I'll put you over the side!' Prentice and Thomas clambered into the dory, but Tubby Ted pulled away, screaming. "'I'm not getting in that little boat!' "'Hurry!' bellowed Alf. "'The next wave puts us on the reef!' "'Get in!' shouted James, grabbing Tubby Ted's shirt and yanking him so that they both fell backward into the dory. James' head slammed against the side. Momentarily stunned, he felt Alf shoving the dory, then heard shouts and screams as another huge wave rose high over the ship and crashed onto the deck, sending the dory shooting overboard, and at the same time dashing the Neverland against the reef, instantly splintering the old ship into hundreds, thousands of pieces. The dory capsized the instant it hit the water, but somehow the four boys managed to hang on, scrambling out from under, clinging to the little boat's rough bottom. James looked frantically around for Alf, but saw only barrels and pieces of wood, shards of the ship tossing in the churning sea. For an hour, two hours, they clung to the side of the little boat as the sea swept it one way, then another, rain pounding down on them, the smaller boys crying, James trying to comfort them. At last the rain stopped and the waves diminished, although the sea was still rough. The sky began to clear, first to gray, then to a bright blue. And still the little boat drifted, drifted. And then, what's that? Prentice said. James looked where Prentice was pointing and saw it, looming on the horizon. 
Something big, he said. That's a mountain, said Prentice. Land, shouted Thomas. Is there food? asked Tubby Ted. Start kicking, James ordered. And they kicked, their excitement momentarily driving the fatigue from their limbs. They kept kicking, but after a few minutes their exhaustion started to return as it became clear. They weren't making much progress. The mountain looked as far away as before, maybe farther. The random powerful thrusts of the, of the sea were far more powerful than their puny legs. We'll never get there, said Prentice, sniffling. We're going to drown out here. No, we're not, reprimanded James, but he feared Prentice was right. He kept kicking, but one by one the others quit, too tired to continue. James saw now that it was no use. The mountain was at a different angle now. The sea was going to carry them past it. James closed his eyes, fighting tears, fighting despair. Need some help, lads? The boys spun their heads so fast they almost lost their hold on the dory. There behind them, clinging to a barrel, was Alf, smiling. What do you say we go ashore, lads, he said. We can't, sir, said James. We've been trying, but we can't. Let old Alf give you a hand, said the big man, letting go of the barrel and swimming to the bow of the dory. Where's that line? Ah, here you go. With practiced sailor's hands, Alf quickly tied the line around his chest. Hang on, he said, pushing off and swimming, with clumsy but strong strokes toward the island. The boys felt the dory moving and hope returning. It took a good hour more. Alf had to stop and rest repeatedly, but finally they were close enough to the island to see trees, and then a beach, and in another few minutes Alf put his feet down and stood, and the boys cheered in gratitude to Alf and the Almighty in that order as he dragged the tiny boat across a shallow lagoon to the edge of the beach. James jumped off and ran onto the sand, falling on his knees. We're safe, he shouted. I hope you're right, said Alf. The boys looked at the big man. What do you mean? asked Prentice. Aren't we safe here? That depends, said Alf. Depends on what? asked James. Looking off into the dense jungle, Alf said, On who else is here? Chapter 33 Land Ho The Jolly Roger pitched and heaved in the rolling seas as sunrise broke in a cloudless sky. The storm now passed. A shifty fog had settled in the wake of the storm. The Jolly Roger cut in and out of it like a ducking behind a curtain. Black Stash, still wearing the British captain's uniform, climbed onto the deck, with Smee following closely behind. Stash rubbed the weariness out of his eyes and released a, furious, a ferocious belch. Then he froze as an opening in the fog gave him a clear view starboard. At that moment the shout came from the crow's nest. Land ho! All hands on deck, Stash hollered and the disheveled crew, sleepless after a nerve-wracking storm-tossed night, stumbled onto the deck in ones and twos. They smiled at the welcome sight of the mountainous island, its lush greenery beckoning. "'Heave to, men!' shouted Stash. "'Hoist the main and hard to starboard! Fresh water and coconuts within the hour!' The sailors cheered, setting eagerly to work as Smee needlessly repeated the orders. The Jolly Roger quickly drew close to the island, rounding a point of land that opened onto what looked like a fine lagoon anchorage. Stash raised his spyglass, scanning for rocks or reefs ahead, 
and saw none. He then aimed the glass at the beach. A line of footprints in the sand. Smee, he said. Ready a landing party at once. Shut up so I can hear, Slank kicked little Richard, who was snoring at the top of his sizable lungs. Little Richard snorted awake, a line of drool from his chin to the floor of the cage, where he and Slank were locked in the lowest hold of the Jolly Roger. The cage was the ship's brig, but had but it had also been used as a livestock cage. In fact, Slank and little Richard were sharing it now with a pig and a cow, neither of which seemed happy with its new cellmates. The two animals huddled together by the cell door opposite the two men. Because of the livestock, the brig had reeked when the men were thrown inside, but the stench was even worse now, because little Richard had been sick in the storm. "'What is it?' said little Richard, sitting up. "'Quiet,' said Slank. "'They're shouting.' He pressed his ear to the low, damp ceiling, concentrating. Then, "'They've spotted land.' "'Land,' said little Richard. "'But we're a thousand leagues from nowhere.' "'Must be an island,' said Slank. "'Time for us to get off this ship.' "'How?' said little Richard, looking at the iron bars surrounding them. "'We can't bend these.' They've tried that. They'd tried that during the night, both of them gripping a bar and straining against it with all their might. But even little Richard's massive muscles were no match for the brig's bars. I've got an idea, said Slank. Give me your belt. My belt? said little Richard. Just give it to me, snapped Slank, taking off his own belt. He joined the two belts, then, standing next to the cow, passed the belts around two of the iron bars of the cell door. The cow shifted nervously, trying to move away, but Slank grabbed the rope around its neck and quickly tied it to the belts. "'Do you see now?' Slank asked. "'All I see is a cow tied to the cage,' said little Richard. "'To the cage door,' corrected Slank. "'When the cow jerks away, it'll yank the door open.' "'But what's going to make the cow jerk away?' asked little Richard. "'You're going to milk it,' milk it said Slank. "'But I don't know how to milk a cow,' said little Richard. "'Exactly,' said Slank. "'We'll stop there for today. "'Next one is Chapter 34, Reunited.'